0: You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor, and joining me is the magnificent, the marvelous, the one and only Mike Worthley. Hello, everybody. Hello, magnificent Mike. How are you? I am hanging in there. How are you?
1: Not too bad. You had a nice break last week. It's a good take a breather every once in a while.
0: I I only wish that it had been a nice break. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Oh, I could tell you the stories that I went through. Mm. Suffice to say, I was on an airplane that had smoke in the cabin, and we deplaned, and we got on a plane the next day that also had smoke in the cabin.
1: Nice, nice, yeah. International travel is always challenging, even without smoke in the cabin. So
0: yeah, and uh, you know, I don't want to cast aspersions on any one particular <laughs> airline carrier, but um, goodness, landing in Toronto and then being told that there were no flights out for me the next day and that I have to stay an additional night in Toronto. Was was a great exercise, and then landing without luggage at the very end was also good.
1: Yeah, you know what? I've I've done my share of international travel. And I'm I think I'm done. I, I think I've had about enough of that. And uh, good on you for still doing it.
0: I I love it, but this was about the worst that I've ever had. I have never lost four bags at once. I've never had to go to customs and have them say, "But you don't have your bags, sir. Where are your bags? You can't clear customs without your bags." It was it was an interesting bit of a bureaucratic nightmare to solve. Mm. And. One of the things that is intriguing to me is we've run a story that Malcolm wrote up for us this week about Apple wanting the iPhone to be proof of identity and replace passports.
1: Yeah, this is a uh, this is a new patent filing that Apple filed a little bit ago and just went public this week. It's, a, it's an interesting saga, and with the iPhone having the RFID and open to more than just Apple Pay, it's, it's conceivable.
0: So one of the things about passports that's interesting is that they they all have in them a chip, and the chip has some form of biometric identification or at least some form of the identifying information on the passport encoded so that a machine can read it and you'll find this in in places like Pearson Airport in Toronto where you put your passport in the reader and It goes ahead. You look at the camera. It goes ahead and matches your cam face to the ID information and will give you the pass to go through customs or if you're doing immigration in Ben Gurion in Israel they have the biometrics set aside there for Israelis. Or if you're going into Heathrow, they have it for EU and UK citizens. Mm -hmm. And right now, there's still a lot of regionalism to this, where, you know, clearing the US and Canada, you can use your US one and do this sort of thing in Canada. But like I said, in Ben-Gurion, it's only for Israelis. Or if you're entering Heathrow, it's only for EU people. And it's, it's one of the things... That I think using a patent like this, that Apple could really unify the systems and make global entry more of a reality. This
1: is similar to technology that assorted states are looking at for driver's licenses as well. With basically, it's a multi-step process where the official has the the this, the paging device, and you wave your phone over it to activate the RFID then there's authentication of some some type with the biometrics whether it be touch id or face id and it, the handshake is the handshake is what apple's patent is really talking about on this this isn't really a wide patent this is basically how apple would do it this isn't a shotgun patent saying well we want a patent on everything involving epass
0: yeah this isn't a kitchen sink this is a right. a specific part of that claim
1: mm-hmm. Uh, it's doable. It's the future. I, I don't know what to tell you if you don't think that something like this is the future. Um, we're, you know, we're not looking at a minority report facial recognition system globally everywhere just yet. I mean, obviously, there are steps being taken in that regard as far as identifying for law enforcement, which notably went very badly about two weeks ago at this point. Um, we'll see. I mean, this is I think this is an interim step toward that, toward a universal facial recognition system. Whether that's good or bad is really up to you, and I'm, I'm not certain how I feel about it yet. But fortunately, it's not something I have to think about that hard yet either.
0: Well, real ID so, – so let me say this. In America, in the United States of America – the way that we've traditionally done things is that we have 50 states and each state is their own authority for issuing mm-hmm. identification that they mm-hmm. issue their and driver's licenses for the rest of the world. It's not like that. It's all done as a national right. ID. And so in the States, there's been sort of a push to something like that called a real ID. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of resistance to that as we've been going along towards that path. Uh, this year, When I went to renew my driver's license in North Carolina, I I was told that I had to wait in line and show up in person and do it with a new photograph in order to get a a real ID, which is their their version of this, this national database kind of thing. And... I, st- I asked the fellow in line saying, do I really have to do this? I can renew online. He says, well, not if you want the real ID. And I said, what's the difference? And the difference, it turns out, is that your identification, your driver's license says not to be used for identification purposes. It says that um, if I want to go to a military base, it's not going to be accepted. If I want to go on a flight, it's not going to be accepted. And I said, well, this huh. this doesn't harm me in any way because I can either use my passport, which is a federally issued ID, right. mm-hmm. or my global entry card, which is a TSA pre-check national ID kind of right. thing. So I'm not hurt in any way by this. And they said, well, we don't know what other things it's going to be used for yet. We don't know what else is going to happen. You better go ahead and do it. And I looked at this two-hour long line of people being ferried through to get mm-hmm. their photos taken and said, you know what? Pass. Hard pass. Yeah, hard pass <laughs> <laughs> today. Let's,
1: let's, let's revisit this. Let me break out my wallet here. Um, my, I come up for renewal in two years, so uh, I guess, I guess we'll shelve this conversation a little bit, at least until then, and we'll see how the States proceed with the real idea. I know it's a thing. I know it's creeping up. I also know it hasn't progressed that much in the eight years that they've been talking about it. So th- you're, you're talking to me about it being in your DMV lately as far as being able to get it there is, uh, is new to me.
0: Yeah. North Carolina was one of the ones that was originally dragging their heels on this eight years mm-hmm. ago. And uh, apparently everyone is now being pushed to get in line on it. But there's still the option to renew online and have it say not a real ID, not for ID purposes. And that's what I opted hmm. for because, frankly, I am impatient and don't want to stand in a queue that long. I can understand that, <laughs> but it's it's going to be my my hope is that if Apple is able to, and, and it seems to me that they would be one of the ones able to do it as a national or a, a global push, saying here is the standard, go ahead and unify your passports around it, and then have the phone act as a passport would be really interesting.
1: I I think that it does require somebody with a market share in mobile like Apple to push that. I don't think you know the subset of Android devices is sufficient for that. And I, cause I think there's too much variance in what the individual vendors choose as far as biometrics go, which is still a requirement on, on the passport. So, hmm, that's, uh, I, I don't really see this. I don't think this is immediate uh, just because of that hardware variance. And I don't think it's immediate because it would be Apple primarily, and maybe other vendors might follow suit, but not, eh, it's the future. Just when I guess is the question.
0: In these immigration areas, there's always options. There's the traditional uh, kiosk with a physical person standing mm-hmm. at it. There's the kiosk that is completely digital and unattended, and you use your passport and your camera and biometrics to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and so it seems to me that it would be something that could be adopted in terms of another option in, term, in the kiosk kind of thing. It's, it's something okay. that as long as they didn't eliminate the kiosk with the human to talk to people who don't have a phone with a charge or have an Android phone or whatever the case is, that it's still acceptable.
1: Okay. But yeah, I mean, that's fine with me. I mean, like I said, I, I'm pretty sure my international travel days are over. The, the real ID thing is more pressing personally, but I can see where this would become a big deal.
0: It would be I'm, – I'm optimistic just because anything that eases my travel through these international uh, checkpoints is welcome.
1: I mean, yeah, here's the thing, right? I mean, Reagan, National, and Dulles are very close to me. And as a side effect of what you're talking about, about the volume in those airports and the fact that they're international airports, you have to count on three hours before your flight getting there. Mm -hmm. And maybe you'll be through in 20 minutes and you're waiting two and a half hours. Maybe it's going to take you that whole three hours. So for me, any kind of East Coast travel, I have to assess... Those three hours, plus the hour it takes me to get to that airport, plus whatever it's going to take me to disembark, and then consider that versus a drive time.
0: You are almost better off flying to a less-traveled airport and flying international out of that.
1: Yeah, you mean driving to, BW, driving to BWI or something? You could on, drive like, to, to BWI, the, an to you could that.
0: take an hour flight to Raleigh, and then fly to England from here, and fly to England yeah. direct, Yeah, and maybe deal with your, your passport control that way. And be faster than waiting around three hours there
1: i mean i've got man you know here's the thing i still have a security clearance some years ago mm-hmm. that i keep up to date because i do support work out in town sure and that's an additional layer of hassle because in that random you know i'm doing air quotes here in that random selection for security i don't think i've ever not been stopped for that
0: interesting you you're cleared and yet stopped because you're cleared yeah now have you ever tried to do a TSA or a global entry a pre-check? I don't
1: travel enough to again that that's the solution, right? I mean that's clearly the solution to my being stopped every time and being asked what's on my computer and and things of that nature. Mm. But I don't travel enough to really justify that. It's the the 3 hours I was talking about before, that's just endemic to the area. Right. The, you know, that's just that's, that's just the, the volume of people. Wrong of humanity. Whether it's a domestic or international flight, you're count on 3 hours. Count on it. Yeah. So, but yeah, anything that could make that not three hours, you know, if, if this could go down to two and a half hours or two hours, that would be fantastic.
0: Well, the other thing that we should talk about is the app Mobile Passport. Mm-hmm. There's an app called Mobile Passport yep. that uh, doesn't work with all airports, but does work with a large number of airports. And when you're re entering the U.S., they have a separate line for it. And if you've put all of your information into it your passport information the people you're traveling with and answer the typical customs questions it will help you clear customs faster on re-entry
1: yeah i saw that one was released i haven't done a lot of looking at it since do you have a lot of experience with that one since i
0: have used it twice personally um, and i would have used it more but it doesn't work with all the airports that i fly through Mm. and the times that we have used it the first time they didn't have the dedicated line well understood and well separated. Okay. And so while it was faster, it was a little annoying trying to figure it out at first. The second time it was a breeze.
1: Okay. once the kinks got worked out of the system and they and they figured out exactly how to deal with it, huh?
0: Yeah, and you know, separating it they they had originally separated it out so that they had the the traditional line and then they'd combined this line with the crew, but if you didn't look like with like you were with crew they kicked you out of the line kind of thing. It was mm-hmm. bizarre. But the second time it was pretty easy.
1: Yeah, you know, William wrote an article about travel apps this week, uh, and we published that. I want to say on Wednesday, we'll toss that in the show notes. But I took uh, a couple a couple weeks ago. I guess it's a month ago now. I took a I took a long road trip uh, back to New England from from the DC area, and it really surprised me how much things have evolved just in the last three years since I've taken a longer trip like that. The toll booths with the Easy Pass. Automated. The Mass Pike, if you don't have an easy pass, no big deal. We'll just bill you. And they did, and I just got it. Um, Apple Pay at gas stations, Apple Pay at rest stops. It, it's just it, there's a lot of friction reduction overall to technology. And, you know, like any technology, you can use it for good or evil. But I've been very pleased to see some of the advancements that the ubiquitousness of smartphones and smartwatches and things have made possible.
0: Definitely. I want to stop right here for just one second. I want to ask you, our listeners to go ahead and email me, go ahead and contact us at uh, news at com. I, I want to understand a little bit more about you guys. You know, are, are you business owners? Are you consultants? Are you it professionals? Are you educators? What, what sorts of, of things do you do in your life that, that comprise our listener base here. We really like having you. We really like you listening. And I just want to make sure I know a little bit more about the sorts of things that you're interested in hearing about. So go ahead and let us know at news at appleinsider.com. I really appreciate it. Now you mentioned all about, uh, how how has reduce the friction at rest stops and, and convenience stores mm-hmm. and gas stations and things like mm-hmm. that. Apple is running an advertisement about Apple pay on their, uh, and they've added this to their official YouTube channel and. It's it's focused around the person-to-person kind of payments, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. It's Apple's done a lot of strange little ads, and they're running promotions all the time to help with Apple Pay. And, you know, obviously this all rolls into their services income, which they're very, very happy with. We, we didn't really cover this last week in much detail because by the time we recorded the podcast, the earnings are already a couple of days old. But they're doing more mobile transactions than PayPal. Really? That's incredible. That is an incredible volume. They're doing more transactions in total than Square.
0: Wait, wait. I need to separate this out because do we know if they're doing more person-to-person transactions than PayPal or is it just more total transactions?
1: more more mobile transactions in PayPal. Okay. It's not necessarily person to person, but this kind of all rolls back into the greater Apple Pay thing where it's the one payment service that Apple wants you to use for everything. Between payment between peer to peer payments, between business payments, between Apple Pay at 7-Eleven and CVS which is coming soon. It's Apple Pay adoption is incredible. It's just this massively expanding force that Apple has had the patience to deal with the the years of, well, no one's using this and this is a failure.
0: And that's something that we said on this podcast a couple of years ago is I was really optimistic about the future of Apple Pay and everyone told me I was nuts that cash and credit is still king.
1: Well, cash and credit is still king. Let's not make any mistake about that. But this is also a payment service that Apple's taking a fraction of a percent on your milk buy at Aldi's, for instance. Mm-hmm. This is not money that they would have captured otherwise. This is this is straight cash. This is, hey, this you own an Apple device and use it to pay. We'd like a little bit of that payment, please. And they get it. And they got a lot of resistance from the banks. They're still getting resistance from some retailers, which are slowly falling one by one. Walmart will never cave, obviously, because they've got their Walmart pay that they're very, very happy with. But I don't think I've ever seen that used more than twice. So it, it's I, – I guess this is part of the increasing adoption of Apple technology overall beyond just the hardware by the American public.
0: Absolutely. My hope is that the person-to-person element of this that they're surfacing here becomes more apparent, more obvious, and gains adoption because person-to-person is one of those interesting things. You know, we've, I've traditionally personally used PayPal for person-to-person with occasionally using Google's version of it. Yep. Uh, and just trying to get people to use Google's version was – a high mountain to climb because PayPal is so widely accepted by people yep. mm-hmm. for the first time ever. I, I have someone regularly taking square cash from me now, Okay, which was a surprise to me, but that's how he decided he wanted to do it. So the, the fellow who cuts my grass on my lawn is, uh, is taking square cash from me, which is wild, especially since he has an iPhone and we could be using uh, Apple pay cash, but <laughs> that's what he chose to do. And, and so. I would very much like for people to use Apple Pay cash for that to work more and more often but I think one of the things that I like is uh, would also like is for Apple Pay cash to be more open to more countries mm-hmm. cross border and for me to be able to do it from my Mac as well as my phone.
1: I think that's coming and I think that Touch ID on the 2016 MacBook Pro and on is going to be the key to that obviously we'll see exactly when it rolls out. We don't see any immediate support for it in Mojave, but it, but that may change. We still have a couple of beta releases between now and the full shipment of that. So I'm, I'm encouraged by it. I don't personally use it quite as much as I think I can, because I don't think I always necessarily realize when my vendor of choice supports it. And I, I think that, I think that retailers could be a little more circumspect about it. I think that they could more clearly give it as an option instead of as an afterthought. But I have used it in places where I've known that it's supported and the cashier did not. So uh, this is still very much an educational issue, I think, both for consumers and for businesses. Yes. So the the ads are welcome. In, In this regard, the ads are welcome.
0: Now, let's turn to education for a moment. Stephen wrote a story that says that North Carolina elementary school teachers are getting iPads in the fall that the state is going to spend $6 million on devices to improve reading skills for North Carolina children. This is, this is interesting. And it's especially interesting given um, that I'm here in North Carolina and my children in the school systems here. And Mm -hmm. what I'm finding is a lot of pushback against Apple devices. Uh,
1: That's, you know what, that's been the case for, I want to say 20 years that, that I've seen that there's, well, we had Apple IIe's back then and we still have a couple, but you know, we don't support Apple in any way. And, and that's fine. And that's up to the school system. I, I'm a, As with most things, this is not a binary issue. This is not a yes or a no. I, I would like to see schools acknowledge the fact that students are going to run into more devices in the world than just Apple or just Chromebook or just Windows.
0: So here's what what I'm seeing is I was given a survey to to fill out for my daughter entering eighth grade. And the survey asks questions that, that basically indicate that they want us to have a Chromebook, mm-hmm. basically. And, and they've said that to me as much in the past. The What, what they're doing is instead of saying in, – in the past, they've said they don't want fancy tablets, expensive tablets, because the screens will break, which they've, they've pointed at as iPads. But here what they're asking is, my child has a device that holds an eight-hour charge and has a keyboard. And we plan to purchase a device for this August or we'll need a device assigned to them or we'll need a device assigned to them. It doesn't have access at home kind of thing. And, and basically what they, they're saying is they're all in on Google Classroom. They're all in on Chromebook and they want students to have Chromebooks. They'll accept the iPad if the student has a keyboard case for it and will install all of the Google Classroom apps. Okay. That's basically where they're headed, but they're all in on Google. And I questioned them about Google's privacy and and guarding student rights, especially around single sign-on to other applications using the the school Google account. And they sort of wavered on it and said, everyone else is using Google, therefore it's safe.
1: Uh, And that response doesn't necessarily surprise me. Uh, It's... (sighs) there's a lot going on with school information technology. Obviously it's a, it's a complicated subject and the students are in many cases, (laughs) the problem, not the hardware. Uh, And and this is, well, I'm glad that they are, you know, say that if you provide the iPad and you provide the keyboard, that's fine. It's hard for me to say to a school, no, you can't mandate a single learning environment like the Google, like the Google platforms. Mm. It's hard for me to say that it's, it's hard for me to get upset about that for a host of different reasons. But on the other hand, I do understand what you're talking about, single sign-on and privacy concerns and things of that nature. The response that you, that you were given obviously isn't great and probably should have been something more to the effect of the fact that, well, look, we understand that you have concerns, but this is the platform that we've standardized on. You know, I, I guess a more polite version of this is the way it is and you can conform or not, mm-hmm. as opposed to, well, yeah, it's safe because everyone else says it's safe. Because you can't say that. I mean, th- that's an irresponsible and non-educational thing to say, frankly.
0: Well, there's a wonderful EFF report about Google Classroom and single sign-on and some of the issues with Google in the classroom that I forwarded to them, which I, I think they promptly must have disregarded.
1: Well, yeah, I, I'm sure they did, yeah.
0: <laughs> they, they're, they're, that's, that's just what it is. I'm going to end up getting a Chromebook for the kid even though I, I'm – going to end up teaching good practice around single sign-on for school use only and trying to separate out accounts that are not school use. Because the, the difficulty is even if Google complies with their, their privacy statement, complies with their terms of service saying that they're not going to track student accounts, when they start using single sign-on with that account with other applications, there's no guarantee that those other applications have anywhere near the same terms.
1: Yeah. And you're not wrong. I mean, there's there's nothing in that statement you said was inaccurate. and um, but like I said, on the other hand, I understand where, frankly, the school IT department is beleaguered and, well, not to be too blunt about it, but doesn't really care about your concerns about it. Does that
0: make sense? No, it does. They, first of all, their concern has always been job security. Yeah. Which is why they've supported Windows for as long as they have in school environments because it keeps them employed. The The other thing is about having a, a homogenous environment to support. Having a ton of different devices on the network, having yeah. a ton of different devices and applications to support gets out of hand quickly.
1: Oh, yeah. You've got to figure that there's going to be row gaps, too, that are going to pop on the network and have to be dealt with.
0: It's going to be interesting for me to see what happens in schools, in elementary specifically, where the children, where the teachers get iPads and see how those get put into place. The real problem with putting hardware into place, and this is true of any situation in education, is there has to be a curriculum written to support it. There has to be training for teachers to know how to use this stuff because otherwise you end up with what happened in Virginia, what, 10 or 15 years ago where they got iBooks and no program to support them at all and had no idea what to do with them.
1: That was 2002? You remember that one? Oh, yeah. I was here. I mean, I I wasn't in Richmond, but I was – I got to witness the selling frenzy for $50 on that many years later. But yeah, I mean, that was that was a good program that was hampered by a number of different factors. That The hardware support was there, the software support was there, but the school administration didn't realize it and didn't think that they needed to attend the training on it.
0: <laughs> there's a recipe for success.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on here, and just from... Apple's perspective on, you know, hey, look, I mean, we've got this training. You need to go. No, we're fine. We, you know, we have IT. We can handle it. No, really, seriously, you need to go to this. No, we're fine. We got it. I you mean, know, we know what we're doing. This is, you know, it's just a Mac. It's no big deal. We can do it. And, well, they couldn't do it. The the complexity of, the, the complexity of migrating to an entirely new software suite plus brand new wireless technology. Mm-hmm was way more than the school could handle and fortunately many of those growing pains schools have adopted over for i mean this is you know i'm wincing and i'm face palming here because i've dealt with schools a lot over the last 20 years with this kind of thing and it at every level it's a nightmare ranging from the overly tech reliant to the luddites and every possible viewpoint in between so, I mean, in in this article itself, we've had people saying, "Well, technology is not the solution." Well, no, it's not the solution. It is a tool, and what you do with that tool is entirely up to the teachers. If the teachers just put it in a box over there, then it is no it is no better than a hammer. It's not doing you any good for anything not used. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, while well, I applaud this school going iPads to the teachers to help with reading literacy that this is only part of the problem this is only part of the solution this is this is this is one small segment of what needs to be a larger discussion and we've talked about education before on this podcast and how important it is and if if you don't have a complete suite of tools if your toolbox is not full with what you need to get the job done then you're gonna make do with other things that aren't gonna do well and, and it'll and people will say, oh hey, this didn't work because this is terrible. And it may not be terrible, it may just be executed poorly. Like in like in the Richmond system, for instance. For instance. Yeah. The iBooks were great. They were executed very, very poorly. And Apple took a lot of heat for that. And Apple shouldn't have taken a lot of heat for that. That needed to be pointed squarely at Richmond's forehead. For the poor implementation of the program,
0: but it wasn't the first time. It wasn't the last time something like that happened. Actually, um, you know, another good example was the Duke iPods. Remember the Duke iPods?
1: The the Duke iPods, the L.A. Unified School District, about five years ago, that monumental collapse. Um, that was again. That was not on Apple. That was on. That was more on the school than anything else. Uh, you know. So I mean. But here we are, we're talking about failures. We're not talking about successes. Because you hear about the failures, you don't hear about the successes.
0: True. Absolutely right. And there are a lot of successes, to be honest. you know, we, We've we heard uh, in the past about the Cedars School in, I think, Scotland that, that mm-hmm. does a lot with iPad and has an iPad one-to-one program that is very successful. Yep. Um, there have been other implementations that have done very well in schools. Uh, and and of course we heard about some of them, the education event earlier this year. It's it's just one of those things where I I hate feeling the effects of being pushed into a box and 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 seeing children routed down one path that isn't necessarily the. Uh, it, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. The Chromebook
1: one bothers me, and not because it's a Chromebook. It bothers me because once they get out of the K through 12 grade system, mm. they are never going to see another one.
0: That doesn't bother me as bad. So so there are questions about what you're trying to do, right? One is, are you teaching for utility later in life with the tool, or are you teaching the concepts and the tool is just a tool? And one, one way of looking at it is, if, if you taught someone how to use Windows XP, and by the time they're in the workforce, they're using Windows 10, does it even matter because it's an entirely different system? Or... You know, for the same reason, if you're saying you were teaching on Mac OS 9 and by tying them in the workforce, they're on 10.5. Does it even matter? Because they're entirely different. So, can you throw out the tool and just worry about the content and the classroom management?
1: Well, why not both? Uh, there's no reason it can't be both. I, I understand what you're saying about the operating systems, but I'd have the same complaint. I'd have the same complaint if a school was teaching uh, was teaching Mac OS 9 in the school as a practical application as I would. With them teaching Windows XP versus Windows Ten, the, those, the, why can't you have both? Why can't you have using it as a tool and using it as a practical skill? The students don't have time to do this any separately. Do this at the same time. Hmm. It's a practical knowing how to learn is a skill. Knowing how the tools, knowing how the tools work to help you learn that's a that's a separate skill. And and there's no reason why it can't be both.
0: Interesting, very interesting. You know, I, I the the benefit of the Chromebook first of all, security professionals love them because it's so easy to restore to a known good state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Second of all, if you throw one out, you sign in on the next one. Yep. So there are some real benefits from that standpoint. The The other thing is that Google has done a reasonably good job of classroom management in terms of receiving assignments from students as attachments to Google Docs kind of thing that no one else has really built out. Apple hasn't built that out properly either. and. Until Apple does, it's going to be hard to replace Google Docs and Google Classroom.
1: I, I agree. I, that's there's certainly no arguing with that.
0: Hmm. But I wish there were. Yeah. I, I wish you would argue with me, Mike.
1: I mean, how? Come <laughs> I mean, at there's, me. There's, you know, there's 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 a lot of things right, and there's a lot of things wrong with education. But the the thing is, is we need it to be all right, not just. Acceptable, uh, and that's my stance on it. So
0: here we go, aiming at acceptable.
1: Yeah, you know, that's. I, I dislike that. I, I I dislike that in everything. I lowest common denominator bothers me.
0: Yeah. So me too. Well, let's let's move on. I'm I'm I fear I'm boring our listeners, and I'm just being <laughs> frustrated. And so you know what? Let's get past that. Apple CarPlay. So Apple CarPlay is something that I really love. I enjoy. And, and honestly, I wish it were in every vehicle I ever rode in. And while I was out this these past couple of months, I had the experience of riding in a number of cars that have Android head units in them. Mm-hmm. And these are units that shipped in the cars. They were a Kia and a Toyota and a couple of others. And they were... When I, when I checked, they were running the old systems like uh, Android 4.4 4, KitKat. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Very few of them were updated to the new stuff. Now, obviously, they're Android, and so by default, they shipped without the ability to, let's say, play video while driving. But numerous ones of that had been hacked and, and side-loaded apps so that they could uh, do that kind of thing. And it's a little disconcerting riding around in a taxi cab with video playing on the head unit in the front seat on an on 8-inch a <laughs> Android <laughs> tablet display.
1: Yeah, I can see where it might be,
0: and so that that was that was something. I really do have a, a solid appreciation for Apple Android car, for Apple CarPlay and and what Google's doing with Android Auto, in terms of trying to make them more than just stock Android customized for a car. That these things respect whether you're driving or not, and your ability to change settings or not, and, and are more sensible than what I was seeing over there.
1: There's been a lot of movement on on CarPlay. And this is another one of those technologies that Apple just said, you know, we're gonna release it, but we've got the money and the ability to wait until until the industry at least partially caves to us. And going back in history, if you look at it, Ford and the other manufacturers said, No, you know what, we're not doing this. You know, get bent Apple. We're not there's no way we're gonna adapt.
0: I mean, Ford had put all that money in into Microsoft. And so, of course, they were going to stay with Microsoft for ages because they've built out everything from the installation into the dashboard down to service and updates at the dealership. Mm-hmm. so it's a hard thing to get rid of once you're hooked on that
1: yeah, sync is terrible. oh man is that bad
0: Well, they had sync with with Ford and they also sold sync into Kia, I believe
1: yeah i don't have i mean my my sister in law has uh, has one of the versions of of sync, and it, oh man, is that awful yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm not even saying that as an Apple fan. It's just from a, from a user experience. It's just, the interface is obtuse. The the data connection is unreliable. It's just I. It's just not a good system.
0: I rented an Explorer once that had Sync in it just to see what Sync was like, and mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, you're right. Mm. It, it was it was impractical. But CarPlay continues to grow in terms of adoption. So Mazda CX-9 begins shipping with CarPlay in the touring yeah. trim. Mm-hmm. And you get an eight-inch screen on that. Uh, one of the things to note about having a large display with CarPlay is that the resolution doesn't change. So when you use a large display with CarPlay, you you begin to see the jagged edges of pixels as <laughs> things get enlarged. It's it's true. You know we have this on mm-hmm. the uh, the iPad, the Alpine, the big Alpine, the seven-inch Alpine. No, the nine-inch Alpine wasn't it. Nine-inch, right? Yeah. yeah, we used the nine-inch Alpine a couple months ago, and you're you're still getting that lower resolution display. It's just larger. So, so I mean,
1: I've I've used CarPlay. It's it's not my car. I mean, and this is going to sound really weird, but I don't have it in my car, and I don't want it in my car. When when I get in my car, I turn on the radio. You let it. Well, you know, I, I I'll use my phone for navigation, but that's it. I mean, here's the thing, right? I mean, I, I I was on I was on commercial radio in the '80s before my stint in the Navy, and I loved it. I loved doing it. And when I'm when I'm taking these drives, listening to local radio is fun. And those eleven o'clock at night commercials for Larry's Mattress Mart and, and things of that of that. Hey, nature. he's those, got
0: the best springs. Let me tell you.
1: You know, those are entertaining to me. Those are those are to me. They finding that local station, even if they're owned by Clear Channel or something like that. Yeah it' still it still tells me a lot about the area I'm in, and i that's just something I personally appreciate and i I know I could do it on on streaming applications. I know I could do that. It's just not the same experience as it is for me you know flipping up and down the dial w k r p style you know yeah. so and that just told you exactly how old I am
0: well now, it's been a while since I've driven through Cincinnati <laughs> I, I also will listen to local radio, but I like having my phone plugged into a CarPlay head unit while I do it because it means that the text notifications pop up on the top of the display, even when I'm in the radio side of the application. I don't want them. I, there's there's something very nice about having that come through the head unit. There's something very nice about having the nav come through the head unit while listening to the radio. Okay and i i've grown accustomed to it and I, I want it and i want it in all of my cars and that's why we have a pioneer in one car we have the kenwood in the other and uh, the we had the alpine on trial and we're about we're about to review another pioneer unit the uh, I had 6400 a pioneer, nex
1: i had a pioneer two unit one in I want to say 2014 and I and I took it out. It just it it well it worked well and and I just didn't want it. It, it just it interfered and was unpleasant for my driving experience. You had uh, I mean obviously this
0: is just me. But you must have had the SPHDA 120 or something like that. That was uh, that was one I, of the first pioneers in 2014.
1: It was a, it was a venue ago and it was a long time ago at yeah. this point. So many many words are behind me. <laughs> since, when I, since when I talked about that. So.
0: But, uh, so Mazda has it. It's coming to the Subaru WRX for 2019. It'll be on a 6.5-inch screen in the base trim and 7 inches mm-hmm. in the premium trim and STI, of course. Uh, you know, like we just mentioned, the Pioneer models, the uh, AVH 4400NEX and the 8400NEX are supporting wireless CarPlay as well as the 6400NEX that we're going to review. The uh, Lexus is is putting it in their ES models. And models without onboard nav are going to get an 8-inch display. People that get the nav package are going to get a ridiculous 12.3-inch display.
1: Hey, you know, if that trips your trigger, go nuts, you know? Good on you. But I I think that would probably block, like, three out of four of my air conditioning vents in my car.
0: Well, and that was the experience I had with the Alpine, right? I I put the Alpine in, and its screen, the 9-inch display, blocked two of my vents.
1: Mm, Yeah.
0: And... I, I, but that came down to the way that it was mounted in the car because the, the Alpine is a single din unit mounted in a dual din hole. And so you could mount it in the upper hole or mount it in the lower hole. And, um, the, the kit that they shipped me to install it only accepted the upper hole portion Uh, of that. Yes. And that's That's why it blocked the vents and they, they, their PR company said, you know, why, why did you install it like that? And I said, if you'd sent me the other company's install kit, it would have worked.
1: And we'd be fine. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. But th- these are the things that happen, you know, especially if your car only has a single thing you need. The screen is going to block something.
1: Yeah, here's the thing. If you're looking at CarPlay, do take a look at it. Do bring your phone. Do fiddle around with your different options that you have available to you. And also consider not getting it standard in the car and adding a third-party head. So now that wireless CarPlay can be had with the third-party heads, why not?
0: Absolutely. The the only reason to be concerned about that is the installation kit and required because sometimes the heating controls, for example, are integrated into the fascias in a weird way and it becomes more expensive to do that. Mm, okay. Now Toyota, who has been a long time holdout, they're going ahead and doing it as well, and they're they're going to offer an eight inch screen in the Corolla Hatchback.
1: Yeah, that surprised me when we we when we'd heard about that that Toyota was finally coming over. That was that was a little shocking to me.
0: It appears that basically for every major manufacturer you'd really care about, you're going to have a CarPlay option. And I think that's encouraging. I'm I'm pleased by this development. I really am. Now, of course, we're going to have the, uh, the ILX F309 review go up about the 9-inch CarPlay screen, and we'll have that 6400 review coming out very soon for the Pioneer as well. Mm-hmm. Mike, that's really all I've got for this week. We had a rant about education. We had we had a talk about CarPlay um, and and iPhone international travel and passports. What what else do you want to touch on? Anything?
1: Let's see. Samsung just released their the the Note nine this week. It's I was hoping that it would push things a little bit further. I was hoping that there would be a newer Snapdragon processor in it, other than what's in it now, which is slower than the iPhone ten. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to see exactly how much heat Samsung is going to take for this, given that the Note 9 is either $1,000 or $1,249. Wow. My guess is they're not going to take any heat for it, which seems wrong.
0: Well, the question they is, also, will they take any heat for it, but also will they have any customers for it?
1: Uh, well, that's another question that remains to be seen because we actually got some feel for, with the with the with Note 7 debacle, with, with, with batteries lighting on fire. We, we actually got a feel for... The relatively low number of sales on that being somewhat less than 3 million in total worldwide. And Samsung always gave the impression that this was some massive seller, but that is nothing. I mean, that is practically no sales. And, you know, as long as they're happy with it, great. But 3 million? I mean, that's... The the iPhone SE sold more than that this year. So, but in any event, uh, they also have a HomePod-like device coming out. That's been rumored for a while. We'll hear more about that in November.
0: What's interesting about that one is is the suspicion that it will contain Bixby 2.0 powered by Viv, and Viv, of course, is yep. the voice assistant that was made by at least some of the founding members of Siri
1: it's got an interesting little tripod design. We're going to see how that does with time, I guess. I'm, I'm be interested in looking at this because my contention has always been if Apple has solid competition at the high end, that's better for everybody. I I would like the Samsung speaker to be an amazing product just because Apple will see it and go, "Okay, well, now we got to we got to we got to amp our game up a little bit more." The the Note 9 is not that. They did not do that with a Note 9 and It's just baffling to me why they thought that that was going to be okay, given that there are new iPhones coming out in a month.
0: Well, so part of the problem is the same problem that we see with Intel. If the chip isn't being made, you can't put it in your product.
1: And I understand that, but maybe this would have been something to, I don't know, maybe hold off another couple months and figure figure it out from a performance standpoint.
0: I mean, if Qualcomm isn't making the Snapdragon you need, what else are you going to run with? And you're saying hey. don't make a product, yeah. which is really hard in terms of release schedules because then you end up in the situation Apple's been in with, with the, the long product life cycles.
1: The this whole Samsung event was really, really weird because the first thing they did was start to take pot shots at people who are talking about how, how large large smartphones didn't make any sense. You know what? When the people were talking about large smartphones not making any sense in 2010, they didn't make any sense because they were terrible. So taking that out of context and saying, ah, look how wrong these people were from something from eight years ago, that that, that makes no sense. That uh, So from the get-go, they're already starting to say, you know, hey, look, we're Samsung. Look what, look what we can do. Look what we figured out before everyone else did. Well, sp- larger phones didn't start getting good until about 2013, three years after these quotes that they had pulled before the event.
0: Yeah. And also, if your big thing in 2018 is to go back to stuff from 2010, maybe you need to rethink your event.
1: Yeah, I mean, and they're saying, well, never run out of storage again. But I I guess I'm still trying to figure out. And this is actually a question I have for the listeners. This is not a snarky question. I'm not trying to to ding Samsung in this. I'm trying to figure out if there's a use case I'm actually not seeing. What do you need 512 gigabytes or one terabyte of storage on your phone for? I cannot figure out why.
0: (sighs) So when I've been using Android devices the uh, Android handles storage space in a few different ways. Yep. Um, starting with Marshmallow, it allowed device vendors, device manufacturers to use an SD card yeah. as expanded storage of the internal storage. Yep. It would partition it and say, here, it's one big partition as a part of the internal storage. And you can install more applications, use more photos, do more things with it. Then devices started being shipped without an SD card slot at all, and you just had the virtual SD card slot on the internal storage. And yep,
1: six, on yeah. six, yeah.
0: And you do run out of space, especially if you have a 16-gig device or 32-gig device. You run out. And so being told that there's a possibility to buy more and not run out ever is, is a little bit alluring, especially if you felt the pain on the other end.
1: You know, I, I, I believe you with a 1632 and maybe a 64, but this device starts at 128 and the, and the, and the 1249 configuration has 512. It what's I mean, I, I'm just not, I see, I'm not saying I don't see the use case for the SD card slot on a, on a device that has no storage to speak of. I'm just not sure I see the point of it on this device.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's the, the biggest amount of usage is still for photos and videos. It really is. And The solutions for offloading those tend to be Google photos Mm
1: -hmm.
0: or Amazon prime photos.
1: Okay.
0: And those are your two good ones. If you're on on an Android device, it's Samsung doesn't necessarily want to push Google photos because Samsung is sort of in a a love, hate push, pull competitive relationship with Google. They're not going to actively push Amazon who has rumors about re-entering the phone market. So, what are they going to do to address this problem for their consumers that they don't want to push to these other products?
1: Mm. I don't know. I, I still want to hear from the readers on this. I, I still want to hear from from the readers and listeners about what this is for. Because I keep on thinking about offloading photos and I keep on thinking about music and videos. I'm just not seeing it. I mean, when you're looking at... When you're looking at two hours of H.265 video being 60 gigabytes, I I just don't see where you need to store all of this on your phone. You're going to have a battery problem before you have a storage problem.
0: Right. But Android doesn't let you sync to a computer very well to offload stuff like that. So it's got to go somewhere.
1: Mm, Not sold. Like I said, I want to hear from more people about it. Anyway, you know how to get us. We're going to talk about it right now, in fact.
0: Yes. So please... Tell us again, what kind of, of, you know, are you a business owner? Are you a, a educator? What sort of listener are you and what do you want to hear more about? And please, please answer Mike's question. Everyone answer Mike's question. What do you need that storage for at news at appleinsider.com? Yep. Let us have the feedback. We want to know.
1: Yeah. We want to hear from you.
0: We've reached the end of another perfectly good episode of the Apple Insider podcast. I'm Victor and Mike Worthley. Where can people find you on the internet?
1: Well, just about seven days a week you can find me on AppleInsider dot com. I'm usually lurking the forums for one reason or another. And if you're interested in a more heated version of similar topics expressed on this podcast, you can find them in my own podcast at spacejavelin.com every Monday morning.
0: And do you recommend that for small children?
1: I do not. That is not one that is not for the say I'm gonna say under fifteen crowd on there. So
0: yeah. Thank you very much. All right. Not for children. Here we are, appleinsider.com. Let us know the feedback. We will be back next week.
1: See you later, everybody.